You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Saul Ferris is a lawyer and a collector of Batman comics, books, and toys. He discovered the manga versions of the Batman comics from Japan in the 1960s, collected in Batmanga, the secret history of Batman in Japan. Thank you for joining me, Saul. It's my pleasure, Rick. Saul, uh, tell us when and how you first encountered Batman. As a small child, um, my father had an insurance agency, and... Next door was a drugstore, and you would put a dime and two pennies into the machine, and out would pop a comic book. That was my first introduction to Batman comics in 1966. Wow, they came out of a machine? I didn't know they sold comics out of a machine. 
Yes. <laughs> I wish I had that machine in my collection, but uh, I've never de- never encountered one. Now, uh, here you are. It's 1966. Would you mind telling me how old you were in that then? Well, I was born in 59, so that would have made me seven years old. Seven years old. So you're, you're seven years old, and, and you start reading the Batman comics. Now, was this before the TV show came out? It coincided with the TV show. Um, the, the show was came out in 1966, mm-hmm. and I think that there was a deluge in, in comics or certainly a rise in the circulation of Batman comics due to the popularity of the show. Now, do you remember what first really interested you about Batman as a seven-year-old uh, kid? I didn't really fixate on Batman specifically mm-hmm. uh, at that time. I liked all DC characters and Marvel, for that matter. Um, I, I collected Spider-Man comics and the Incredible Hulk and some of the other Marvel characters. And on the DC side, I, I loved Superman as a kid. But uh, when it came time to start collecting this stuff and paying hard-earned money for these collectibles, I decided in order to avoid bankruptcy, I would focus on one character. And that was Batman, which was my favorite. Now, why was Batman your favorite? I think the the common answer to that, uh, to and to explain, in my opinion, Batman's popularity is more people can identify with the character because he is human and he was not sprinkled with fairy dust and uh, and became a superhuman, such as Superman, who derived derives his powers from the yellow sun. Uh, Batman worked hard to achieve his goals. He's he's someone who uh, worked to achieve the, the, the powers that he has. And I think people identify with that more, that if you just set your goals high and you work hard to achieve them, anyone can become superhuman, so to speak. When you got that first Batman comic that came out of the machine, did you decide to start collect comics right then and there, or had you already been collecting comics? Our family is a family of collectors. My brother had a stamp collection. My other brother had a coin collection. So there was something in our genetic makeup that was amenable to this collecting mentality. So uh, I decided to collect uh, comics and and toys. Now, this was at the age of seven then. Did you, at that that age, did you like... Uh, preserve your toys or take care of them the same way you you do now? No, I don't think anyone had that collecting mentality in the 60s as they do now. I think that developed in the 1980s, and that's why so many of the toys from the, the 60s and earlier are so valuable because they're so rare because no one thought that they would be worth anything um, in the future. Uh, so no one kept the boxes and for example, a 1966 Batman utility belt uh, man- manufactured by Ideal Toys, the box itself is worth more than $2,000. Why? Because they were immediately thrown out. The toys were extremely popular, and the kids ripped into them, including myself, and uh, no one kept this rather large box. So that's what makes them rare and, and, and valuable. I've... Uh, been out outbid on eBay on the utility belt box uh, after putting in a bid of two thousand dollars. So if you have one, it, if anyone listening has one at home, uh, 
put it on eBay. You'll be very happy with the result. Wow. Um, as a as a kid growing up, you you did collect your comics. Um, tell me about um, how that felt. You know, when you're seven years old, it's one thing to collect comics. Did you continue to do so as a teenager and, and uh, through your twenties and such? I uh, couldn't afford it. Is is the simple answer? Um, as you mentioned, I am an attorney, so I spent uh, uh, four years of college and three years of law school as a poor, impoverished student, and I couldn't afford uh, comic books, let alone rare toys. So the answer is uh, I took a seven-year-plus hiatus from collecting uh, during my years of study. Now, but during those years, you retained all the stuff you had collected before, I take it. Thanks to my mother, yes. She, she uh, God bless her heart, she didn't throw out any of my boxes of comics. Well, this is such a, a common tale in the comics world. Do, do you know anybody whose mother threw out their number one Superman, number one Batman, et cetera? <laughs> uh, who didn't jump off a building, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and go uh, fly afterwards. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I, I haven't been, uh, I haven't met any of those folk, those poor unfortunate souls, no. But it, 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 it happened. Um, the, the first Superman, the first Batman comics had a print run in the millions. Uh, they were extremely popular characters. And Superman came out in 1938. Batman debuted in 1939, a year after. And as I say, there were millions of those comics printed. The first appearance of Batman in mint condition is a six-figure comic book. And um, the reason why is... Millions of mothers threw those comics out, unfortunately. Wow. Now, um, at, once you uh, graduated from law school and became a lawyer, you took up collecting again. Tell us a little bit about how you approached it. Is this when you made the decision to go with Batman and only Batman? Yeah, I, I made the decision to focus on one character um, because I knew that there was so much merchandise out there uh, in, in all areas, there's a ton of Superman merchandise. There's a ton of Spider-Man uh, merchandise available um, since the 60s. And I knew that I had neither the room nor the financial resources to collect multiple characters. So um, Batman being my favorite, that was the logical choice. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned room. <laughs> um, as a guy who has books, many of them <laughs> that uh, I've been told many times that there's only a finite amount of space in my house and that someday I'm you know books will come in and some have to go out and I'm not really believing it I think it's kind of like the TARDIS of Doctor Who it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside but uh, so um, could you talk about the space that you started to uh, dedicate to the, the stuff well I I have a, a fairly nice size house, and the previous owner uh, was a wine aficionado, and um, his thing was to collect wine bottles. And I don't drink wine; I don't particularly care for it. So that became my Batman room, and it's a rather sizable room. But yes, it is full. It is a finite uh, area, and what. I find happens as a collector is your collection goes through an evolution. And the more rare pieces that you acquire, 
that pushes out the less rare and less desirable pieces, and they end up in boxes in my garage. Well, once you decided to, to start collecting Batman's um, paraphernalia, did you, how did you go about it? Did you say, I'm going, I mean, how do you find out what's out there to collect, and how do you go about deciding what to collect and what order prioritize? Well, um, for the com- or for the toy collectors out there who are listening, they'll remember Toy Shop, which used to be the mecca resource of toys. And uh, Toy Shop, I believe, is defunct because of eBay. And um, eBay is now is now the new pinnacle of uh, collectors as a resource. And um, if you put in the word Batman in an eBay search, it will return over 35,000 items uh, at the moment. Uh, I remember when I first started on eBay in 1997, eBay would, had roughly 5,000 items. So as eBay has grown, so has the amount of material that, that you can collect on uh, related to Batman. Well, um, as a as a collector, what what are the what different kinds of things can you collect? I mean, toys and and what else? Some of the more rare Batman items would be advertising materials such as uh, store signs or posters, pamphlets, flyers, especially any type of uh, advertisement sign from the 1960s. Again, just like the toy packaging I mentioned earlier. The, this advertising material would be thrown out by the store owner. And so, as a result, any uh, advertising material from the 60s is, is extraordinarily rare and valuable. Um, I have, for example, uh, a safeguard sign, and they, Batman was used to pitch safeguard soap, and you would... Uh, have to buy the soap, send in a few wrappers, and they would send you a pack of Topps trading cards. That sign is extremely um, rare and valuable. Um, so that that's an example of a non-comic book, non-toy Batman item that uh, is very sought after by collectors. <laughs>
is eBay your source of where you find out what's possible to get? I mean, how do how do you find out you know what's out there to bid for on eBay? E- eBay is one resource. I didn't mean to to say it's the exclusive resource for collectors. There are still toy shows, uh, even though uh, eBay has lessened the numbers uh, of toy shows. And I've noticed over the years that the number of sellers that show up to sell at toy shows has diminished uh, because it's easier for a seller to um, sit in his living room and list his items online rather than driving oftentimes considerable distances to the toy show. Uh, The Chicago Toy Show, which has been going on for probably more than, I want to say, 30 years, um, is um, people travel from Iowa to Chicago, from Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, all the surrounding states, toy sellers come and uh, the show used to be four times a year and now it's twice a year. But uh, I found a lot of great Batman memorabilia at that toy show um, besides eBay. Now, you have a, a lot of stuff in, in your, your Batman room. Um, how do you keep track of what you have? And how do you, if you say, decide that uh, the latest thing you've got, um, promotional poster or, or a utility belt box, um, has going to push something out, how do you find what you're going to push out in, in your room? Well, I don't keep an inventory. The inventory is in my head, and I, I realize I should be more meticulous about it. I have uh, video records. Let's say I've taken video and photographs of uh, the items that I have on display, so uh, God forbid there's a fire or something uh tragic happens. I have some sort of record of what was there. But uh, basically, when something rare comes up for sale, I just know it. Um, This is my hobby. This is my passion. Um, I spend far too much time thinking uh, about toys and looking at toys. So when something comes up and I know that I need it for my collection, uh, I will know it immediately. Now, as a collector, you must have some feeling that what you're doing is more than just a, you know, a, a compulsion to fill in all the spaces on a, on a box and a grid, um, or check off everything off a list. There's some some kind of cultural, you know, meaning and importance to what you're doing. Could you talk about your experience of that and and how you feel that and maybe how you share it? Well, Chip has uh, Chip Kid, who is the designer and the the, the brains and um, uh, behind this project, Bat Bat Manga, which contains uh, my Japanese toys. He has kindly called me a, a curator, which normally is a term uh, reserved for uh, museum quality, but these these items to Chip and I and many other lovers of pop culture, uh, these are better than museum pieces. And um, uh, in a way, uh, I am preserving, um, with respect to Japan, that little piece of Japanese culture in which Batman um, 
was so popular from 1966 to 1967, and uh, I'm happy to do it. Now, when you're buying these things online, it's one thing when you're in there and in the trade show, in the toy show, and you can actually see what you're buying and touch it and hold it. Um, but when you're buying online, it seems like you know you're you taking a kind of a risk. Could you talk about how you judge, you know, the the risks you're taking? You're right. You're absolutely right, Rick, that um, sometimes you can get burned because you're not touching, smelling, feeling uh, the item. And as a matter of fact, there are a number of collectors that shy away from buying anything online because they've had bad experiences. Um, Sellers online, they take a picture purposely from an angle which will hide certain defects in a, in a toy, and, and they're, they're being uh, deceptive about the condition of their toy. Um, so what you have to do is ask questions, a lot of questions, and if the seller doesn't answer those questions to your satisfaction, it's probably reasonably safe to conclude that they're trying to hide something and you may not want to bid on the item at all or, or bid accordingly uh, according to what is disclosed. But there, I can say that I have probably uh, uh, had upwards of 2,000 transactions on eBay alone, and I'm, I'm happy to say that I've only been burned less than a handful of times. Now, um, when, when you are the, on the receiving end of a fraudulent transaction, uh, wh- what have you done and how have you sought redress? Well, eBay has its own uh, dispute resolution procedures. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to be, uh, any, I'm not an eBay spokesman, but having been used their service uh, for 10 years, I'm very familiar with it. Uh, it. You have to, first, you have to see what the seller's policy is. Some have return policies and some do not. If they don't have a return policy, then you can still get a refund based on a material misrepresentation by the seller. And uh, if the seller does not want to voluntarily return your money, um, then you can open a dispute with eBay and they will investigate it and get both sides of the story and um, draw, their, draw their own conclusion as to whether or not a refund is, is warranted. Also, um, if you pay by PayPal, PayPal has its own buyer protection where if you don't get satisfaction through eBay's dispute, mechanism, you may utilize PayPal's dispute mechanism. And so that's an additional safeguard. Um, And as I say, out of thousands of transactions I've engaged in, I've only (laughs) been ripped off maybe two or three times. When people are identified as um, engaging in some kind of a fraudulent thing, what happens to them? I mean, do you, do they get ostracized in the community? Yeah, that's uh, on eBay. And again, I, I, I this is sounding like a uh, a tutorial on eBay, but it is the number one um, resource for collectibles transactions 
in the country, if not the world. So um, eBay has a feedback system. And if you are unhappy with the transaction for any reason, whether the seller took an inordinate amount of time to ship the item or the seller misrepresented the item, uh, you can leave negative feedback. And so um, you develop a reputation on eBay for either being honest or being um, uh, dishonest as a seller and buyer. And um, if I may brag, I have, I believe, 1,800-something positive feedback. So all the transactions that I've been involved with, both the buyer and seller have been happy. If you see a seller on eBay um, that has less than 10 feedback, I would be very skeptical of engaging, uh, making a buy from that seller. And certainly if the seller only has negative feedback, um, run, don't walk away from that uh, particular auction. Now, you found these uh, Batman comic books from Japan, uh, which are apparently very scarce. Can you tell me how you, how you happened across them? Did you know well, about them beforehand, I guess, is the question? Well, uh, my disclaimer is I'm not a huge manga fan, even though I do appreciate manga and I, I enjoy it immensely. I am basically a Batman fan. Uh, and if you think about it, there are 12 issues put out by DC Comics of Batman in 1966. And that's the year that I love so much because it's it uh, takes me back to my childhood. Um, the the only there were actually two other titles that Batman appeared in, maybe three if you count Justice League of America, and that was Detective Comics and World's Finest. The point being that Batman only had two titles, Batman and Detective Comics, twelve issues a year. The math is simple. There were uh, 24 comics in 1966. And I love these old 60s Batman comics, but there's only 24 and 66, okay, 48 if you count 67. And so to, f to feed my need for more 60s Batman comics, I had to reach out to other countries, and Japan was one of them. been nice to to see these uh once the the photography was done um and uh, of both the toys and and the the comic books to see them come together in this uh book bat manga could you talk about that experience the first time you actually started to see the project come together as a book 
Well, it, it gives the book wider appeal because uh, I have fellow collector, toy collectors that could care less about the manga and have no interest or desire to, to read the stories. And then uh, the converse is there are uh, uh, legions of manga fans that could care less about these ridiculous toys that are uh, taking up space in the book. So it has, hopefully the book appeals to both the toy collectors and the, the manga readers. And um, as, the, as Chip described it, the toys are the, some, are the mortar between the bricks, the bricks being the stories. And um, of course I'm biased, but I think the combination is, is wonderful and, and I'm really pleased with uh, the way the book turned out. You know, one thing that I, I'll have to confess, I'm not a big fan of Batman, um, nor of Marvel, Shame on you. Nor of uh, toys. <laughs> on the other hand, when I saw this book, it just... This interview is over. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go well, ahead, Rick. No, I'm sorry. No, I, I understood. The, when I saw this book, it just really struck me powerfully. It's such a, a cultural moment captured in, in such a peculiar manner. Could you talk about the kind of the emotional weight of, of this book for you and for people who maybe don't even, like myself, don't even know much about it, the subject? I don't think it's really sunk in for me. Uh, I've been in the eye of the hurricane, and I've been so busy uh, helping put the book together and uh, that I I really haven't had it had the luxury of sitting back and have it all sink in but um, certainly there's a, a great deal of pride uh, on an emotional level as, as, as you say from seeing uh, this slice of Japanese culture preserved for posterity's sake, and hopefully the readers uh, will appreciate and enjoy it uh, as much as Chip and I uh, did putting it together. Well, tell us a little bit about the procedure of putting it together. First, you had everything photographed, is that correct? Correct. And that was Jeff Spears did all the photography. Was it done? Well, Jeff, Jeff lugged about uh, 15 pieces of sophisticated uh, photographic equipment, uh, lighting, the cameras, and whatever else goes into uh, a professional photographer's arsenal. And uh, I had to lug it to my house because there's no way that I would trust uh, the, these treasures leaving my, my uh, vault. And um, so they had to come over, and it took a week to shoot uh, all the toys. The manga would have been would have taken way too much time, and so I had to bite my lip and let them take the manga back to New York, where Chip and Jeff live, to work on photographing. Um, I don't know. I, I think there's probably. 300 pages or more of just manga. So that would have taken forever to shoot that at my house. But procedurally, that's how it went down. And um, then Chip made editorial decisions on which stories would, would make the cut and which toys would make the cut and which would end up on the, on the cutting room floor. Um, but the, the good news is, is there's a ton of material 
certainly sufficient for a follow-up book if this book does well. And and that's why I'm here trying to, to spread the good word that uh, I hope people buy the book so we can do a, do a follow-up. Do you know how he chose? Did you make suggestions as to what stories would be included? <laughs> I, I don't mean to be cute here, but uh, uh, Chip would would take uh, my ideas, but he's the Lord God uh, of this project and the the final arbiter of what would make the cut. Um, he, he's the artist, and I'm just the lowly collector. Um, he's got the artistic eye, and uh, for example, the cover, the soft cover, I said, Chip, isn't this a fantastic uh, manga? Uh, isn't, isn't this Shonen King cover fantastic? And it really was the standout cover among the 75 that I have, and I recognized it as being beautiful and eye-catching and um, and Chip did go with it as the cover, although he ended up tweaking it considerably and cropping it to make to make the magnificent cover that he made for um, for Bat Manga uh, in the soft cover edition. So the answer is yes, I would make suggestions, and most of the time Chip would roll his eyes, but uh, occasionally he would uh, would would pick up uh, some of my suggestions. Now you you talked a little bit about uh, Bat Manga too. Um, you you have as many stories left to to show in there, right? And yes, more toys. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the best is yet to come, in my opinion. I've got uh, a plane train set that didn't make it into this first book. Um, it's something that's hard to describe, and and uh, I'll do my best. But it's much better seeing it. But there's a, a plane on a metal rod that circles above this toy and a train that circles in the opposite direction. It's a wind-up. And, of course, there's Batman imagery all over the toy. Um, but the fact that it moves and it does something, uh, being the plane circling and the train circling, I think makes it a really fun. And, and of course, it's, it's an extremely rare toy. So that'll, uh, if there is a follow-up book, that will certainly... Be included. Once you did, you see the photographs as they came out, and and see the book as it was assembled, or did you just get to get handed the the final edition? Uh, I I just got handed the final edition. Um, Chip uh, had so much work to do in terms of uh, working with uh, Ann Ishi, who was the translator, and. Um, doing the lettering that goes into the balloons. It was it was definitely a labor of love, and Chip put in uh, a huge amount of time. And for him to to go over each and every page and say, Saul, what do you think? Saul, what do you think? It just would have not would have been uh, feasible in terms of the deadline that we were trying to meet. As Now, there's a, a hardcover edition that's a, a limited edition. Could you talk about the differences between the two? Sure. The, the hardcover has additional material, uh, which is primarily Chinese comics. And I'm glad you asked because I'm, I'm uh, in awe of my own uh, Chinese comics, which 
according to the seller, came out of 1950s China. And again, not being uh, a student of Chinese culture, I do know that uh, Mao Zedong's cultural revolution prohibited anything foreign. Uh, that was the, the, the thrust of the cultural revolution, is to purge China of all foreign uh, culture. And Batman is certainly foreign. So the fact that a Batman comic was generated and survived uh, Mao Zedong's cultural revolution is just a thrill to me and astounds me. And uh, I'm so happy that um, the seller in China um, kept these comics and, and, and sold them to me for a very reasonable sum. So a few of those pages are in the hardcover edition and they're completely original material, which, have, which has never been published in the United States. And um, it contains characters from Chinese folklore, such as a, a pig and, and a, a rat and all sorts of these um, characters, which I'm not familiar with, but which come out of Chinese folklore. And then there's uh, Hong Kong Batman comics in the hardcover edition. The hardcover edition also contains a signed uh, tip-in plate um, with some original art on it, signed by Chip Kid himself. So I think it's uh, the difference is probably 20 bucks, and it's well worth the extra money in my in my opinion. Now, ha have you obtained? Um, any of the original art that went into the comics, that, that is the, the drawings that, that uh, Jiro Kuwata did? I have not. Um, Chip did was able to obtain uh, a couple of stories from Mr. Kuwata, uh, Sensei Kuwata, uh, and he, he paid a lot of money for them, and um, I'm sure Mr. Mr. Kuwata is very happy um, with his remuneration for the original art, which, by the way, wasn't even in his possession. He had to ask the publisher at Shonen King for, uh, for his art back, and they were gracious enough to give it to him. But um, I, I've never been a huge fan of original art. Um, I am fortunate enough to have the original art that went into a toy box for the the train, which is pictured in, in Bat Manga. There's what's called a zigzag train, and as the mm -hmm. and as the toy title suggests, you wind it up and it zigs and zags. Um, it contains all the villains: Riddler, Joker, Penguin, Commissioner Gordon, Chief O'Hara. So. Before you ask me what my favorite toy is, Rick, that that it, that is it. That's my favorite toy, and I was just thrilled beyond belief when I uh, saw available for sale the original artwork for the box to the Batman zigzag train. And of course, I paid a lot of money for it, but um, that that's probably the centerpiece of my Japanese uh, toys. I've been speaking with Saul Ferris. He's a lawyer, a collector of Batman comics, and part of the team who put together Bat Manga, The Secret History of Batman in Japan. Thank you for speaking with me, Saul. 
Thanks, Rick. For the Agony Column and KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with the Literary Events Calendar for the week of January 4, 2009. To include your event in our listing, please email me at agony at treshotron.com. At Capitola Book Cafe on Tuesday, January 6 at 7.30 p.m., Mark Zeifman, contributor to Your Money or Your Life, Nine Steps to Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Achieving Financial Independence, revised and updated, who wrote the chapter on financial planning, will deliver a talk on the book and how to stay sane now and even beyond this financial funk. Call 462-4415 for details. On Friday, January 9th from 7 to 8 p.m., Gateway's Books and Gifts is co-sponsoring Dan Millman, who will be signing Way of the Peaceful Warrior. The event will take place at the East Cliff Village Shopping Center, 21511B East Cliff Drive, Santa Cruz, Call 429-9600 for details. For the Agony Column and KUSP, this is Rick Kleffel with Who's Reading in and around the county for the week of January 4th, 2009. Get out there and read a book.
Mitsubishi has worked with Vertical Inc., a publisher specializing in English translations of Japanese literature. She translated the text in the Japanese manga comic book versions of Batman for Bat Manga, The Secret History of Batman in Japan. Thank you for joining me, Anne. Thanks, Rick. And tell me a little bit about your uh, history just uh, with Vertical Inc. And, and give us an idea of how long you worked with them and, and what got you interested in the publishing sure. business. Yeah. Well, um, actually, I don't know when the last time was we talked about what I was up to, but I've uh, since left Vertical, still work with them, but only just kind of liminally as a background figure. Right now, I'm freelancing, doing a lot of translating and publishing for other folks, including Vertical. But basically, I came out to New York to study Japanese language and culture at the Columbia University Department of the same name. Actually, it's East Asian Language and Culture. Hit that crossroad most graduate students do, debating whether to keep studying or to actually try and go out into the real world and find a job. This was in 2003, right when Vertical was getting started. I met the editorial director and president. Hiroki Sakai is the president. Yanni Mensis, the editorial director, they were looking for somebody to kind of do all the 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 dirty work, I like to call it. I thought, gosh, I just got a degree in Japanese literature, and here's a company that wants somebody to work in their translation publishing company. I, I couldn't think of anything more, you know, fateful falling into my lap. I, I couldn't say no, joined, loved it, still love it. I think that kind of brings us to do. Now, uh, that was where you met uh, Chip Kidd as well. He was uh, selected as the art right. director. Tell yes. me about meeting Chip Kidd. I had heard a lot more about him before meeting him. So, you know, I had this image in my head of what that was going to be like. The only graphic designer I knew of who, by name, really, um, at that point. And then everybody telling me, wow, I can't believe you scored Chip Kidd. And when I met him, I was really surprised pleasantly to discover he was just this really funny, affable guy. Super cool, chill very blue humor, which <laughs> totally struck a chord with me. We uh, shared dirty jokes. And I don't know, we just hit it off. So after that, you know, since then, um, Chip has kind of passed the baton on to another art director uh, that, of his finding, actually, Peter Mendelssohn. Yeah, Chip just told me there was all kinds of stuff he was still doing. I was still active in the comic scene, working with Viz and a little bit of work with Drawn and Quarterly. So, you know, he knew I was around. Well, tell me now, uh, it must be different when you're translating comics and translating uh, text or prose. Could you talk oh, about absolutely. the differences between those two kinds of translation? Uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, compare and contrast here. I can say, for example, that in a in a different matter, I've signed contracts to translate comics where the word we use actually isn't translation, it's uh, adaptation and rewrite. So, you know, in a comic book, because you're working with a limited amount of space in the in the speech cells and the bubbles, thought bubbles, all of the FX also come in a very limited space, sometimes because the way language translates, there just isn't the room to be accurate you know, quite literally, there isn't the space to be accurate. The, and that doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. And also, there are there is a visual language in the motion of the characters, for example, that doesn't exactly correlate to the 
to the spoken text, I know that in Batmaga, one of the things we ran into was that a lot of the language, in the, the, the dialogue was just reiterating what was taking place very obviously in the character's depiction of the action. So, you know, it's tantamount to Batman saying, I am talking right now. And, you know, I, th- I would say that in comics, you're just given a lot more freedom to work in, in, the, in the end language. Whereas in uh, text, or that's to say prose fiction with no visual elements, you know, you also have leeway, but maybe a little less, maybe just because you have an infinite amount of space to work with. You don't have the space constraints. You know, I hate to say it, but sometimes people think literature, that's to say prose fiction or nonfiction is taken a little more seriously. So we have the author's feelings to be a little more wary of, whereas comics artists are just as protective of their children, as it were. But, you know, I, there, it's written into clauses, for example, that authors of prose writing have to see the translation if they don't like it. You know, there's just a lot more editorial protocol going on there. Now, when you're working with uh, comics, um, one thing that struck me is those comics were written 40 years ago. So there's a, a temporal translation as well as, as, a, as a, a text translation. Could you talk about that? I actually wasn't very familiar with the Batman franchise uh, as it existed before Gibbons or Miller or, you know, I'm pretty new to the superhero comics as I had never really been an avid fan per se, Um, just what I'd seen in movies or what all. Um, I actually had to brush up a lot on the, you know, the, the beginning incarnations of Batman in America just to understand and kind of get a feel for what was going on in the Japanese version. Um, I, you know, happened to already have a little bit of historical background or I just knew some historical background on 50s to 60s manga, it was actually the American comic scene of the same time period that I was totally uninitiated. So the research, you know, I'm not saying I spent long hours at the public library or anything, but I did have to do a little research on original American Batman comics just to get a feel of that language. Now, could you talk about the, the, the manga mindset that you had to try to capture and translate? Because I, I think that uh, Batman, as presented in Japan, was presented in a rather different way than it was presented in America, wasn't it? Yeah, most definitely. I think um, I can't really speak for um, the publisher, but I'm going to venture to guess that when they were publishing the Batman mangas, um, they just... You know, it was probably what we in publishing call like a mid-list title or, you know, something a little bit forgettable. I mean, no offense to Kuwata, but it's one of those things where American comics just wasn't really 
popular, and it hasn't ever been popular in in Japan, save for maybe the exceptional movie franchise with some hot young celebrity starring. But you know, the American comics is as we understand them, aren't ever really popular. So the mind frame I had to get into was that this the stuff was being made to try really hard to attract new readers. They were trying to create a market. And to that end, I mean, it's just embellished with so much stuff. I'm sure Chip has gone on and on about the toys and the accessories and the there's all kinds of marginal marginalia in each of the episodes that's there are fan clubs and I almost feel like it was one of those like what's the saying 90% perspiration 10% inspiration but you know there was the actual bat manga that they, that was being produced and then all of the other stuff that they were doing um, to try to just reach out and find more fans because you know it, it was going to be so difficult. Yeah, and you know, which is a little different from from the other, you know. And this is also a time when, right around when um, the the whole manga anime joint venture kind of thing was going on, the multimedia outreach. You know, Astro Boy had just gone from um, you know printed serial to uh, to animated broadcast, and I think there was even like a puppet show, Astro Boy puppet show. So it was all about like finding all the different manifestations of each comic franchise as possible. And and um, and in the midst of that was this kind of one-off adaptation of an American comic book. So they had, they had a lot to compete with. One of the things that I think must have been very interesting for you was the actual physical presence of the the these comics. These things are 40 years old, and they're incredibly yeah. valuable. Could you talk about just seeing the comics and some of the toys? How, how did that, was it like to be in, like, Saul's uh, Batman collector booth? Right. <laughs> um, you know, I've been to a lot of Comic-Cons, so I'm not totally unfamiliar with <laughs> being surrounded by geeks and geek culture and, you know, things that have the kind of faint smell of male sweat and tears and blood. Um, I know a lot of this stuff Chip talks sometimes about, very proudly about the, the bidding wars he's in to, to find some of this stuff. Saul is the same way, just, you know, it's like a, it's like the trophy at the end of a long negotiation which I, I totally understand. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I I collect first editions myself. So just being around some of this stuff was really amazing. Chip was showing one of the original what's the word I'm looking for manga anthologies that one of the episodes of Bat Manga was in. Lo and behold, on the cover there was an advertisement for an Osama Tezuka original manga also. And if you open up the book, you'll find a very rare. Tezuka comic in there right next to to the Batman or not right next to but you know sharing the same pages as the Batman manga so um, you know when I saw that my jaw just hit the floor uh, it, it, it's uh, you know yeah it's it's pretty amazing of course I technically translated um, photo reprints of everything I wasn't working with the actual book itself but I you know I did get to um, you know, touch it and flip through it or whatever to the extent that that's possible when it's covered in acetate. Chip also eventually acquired some original prints. Um, that was amazing to see something 
that, you know, Kuata Jiro created just probably over a weekend off the cuff to, you know, make an extra buck or yen, as it were. You know, something that kind of happens in passing, just to see it in its original incarnation is is pretty amazing. It, it's definitely art. It, it validates that, I think, graphic arts and graphic novels, um, comics arts, are a totally, totally legitimate art form. Well, this is interesting. I, I never thought of it that way, that, that the original art would have such a a striking kind of uh, uh, presence. And, and I really like this idea of, of the smell of the stuff, too. Could you, yeah. Did I, you, could you talk about, uh, did you see any of the toys and stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Chip's apartment is, to anybody who doesn't know anything about him, a little scary. <laughs> it's just filled with toys. Um, you know, 40-something-year-old man in New York with <laughs> a penthouse apartment and lots of uh, Batman toys, Superman toys. It's a little, you know, it, it's a little strange unless you know who Chip is. And uh, so, you know, I'm not saying his place smells like sweat and tears, though. Uh, I won't say either way, but, you know, just when people get together and talk about their their uh, limited edition or, you know, one-of-a-kind or vintage toys, artifacts, posters, books, it, it just immediately comes with a, a smell, definitely. Books, I mean, one of the reasons I think people collect books is to, to just have that visceral kind of experience with it. Um, I think something that's uh, been made valuable over the years by its rarity and, and um, kind of retroactive appreciation has an added smell and it's just that boy smell. I don't know how else to characterize it. It's a, it's you know, boys do this stuff. Uh, one thing I, I wanted to ask is that you know, now that you've been exposed to this kind of uh, rarefied world, where you know, Batman assumes uh, an importance that is, you know, perhaps disproportionate in, in as most people would consider it. Um, do you find yourself? your own collector's instincts being peaked either towards do you look at a, a Batman toy and say hey maybe that's going to be worth a thousand dollars 20 years from now <laughs> yeah totally um you know uh, absolutely I you know I used to buy books and not really pay attention to the dust jackets and um since working with Chip <laughs> I I put all of my dust jackets in the equivalent of like a humidor, basically hoping they never ever decay or age. And you know, I I mean, I value my print objects uh, much, 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 much more now. Uh, so to just with the books, the physical books, I I'm much more careful with them. I don't lend them out anymore. <laughs> you know, they're they're protected. Um, with things like toys and accessories, um, I can't afford a lot of the stuff that's you know really collectible, but. Uh, I also just know the economy and scale of it a lot better. So um, I have grown to appreciate that a piece of cardboard with um, a Batman on it could very easily be worth more than me. <laughs> I've been speaking with Anne Ishii. She's the translator for Bat Manga, The Secret History of Batman in Japan. Thank you for joining me, Anne. Thanks, Rick.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.